Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I have two special guests with me today. I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to uh, interviewing uh, these two scholars who have edited a very important new book coming out called QAnon, Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and con um, Conspiracy Theories. And I'm going to just you know, uh, introduce you both. And then I would love to just uh, read all of the different chapter headings because it gives really the heart of the book. And then we can open it up and, um, and get into it. So Michael W. Austin, PhD, uh, University of Colorado Boulder, is a foundation professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University, senior fellow of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, and current president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Uh, his research is focused on ethics and applied ethics. Boy, do we need you more than ever. Uh, especially issues related to the cultivation of character and connections between character and the common good. You've published 13 books, uh, including Humility and Human Flourishing, Oxford Unity Pre University Press. And boy, I respect you for that because I did a chapter for Oxford University Press and it was the most difficult editorial experience I've ever had. We did one on uh, lone actor terrorism for them. In any case, you also did God and Guns in America, and this is your latest uh, book that you helped to edit, uh, QAnon, Chaos, and the Cross, Christianity, and Conspiracy Theories, co-edited with our next guest, uh, Gregory L. Bach, is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion, Director of Center for Ethics at the University of Texas at Tyler. I assume you're a PhD, Greg. I am. Okay, you're very humble in your little bio here. Uh, and your areas of research include bioethics, the ethics of forgiveness, and the philosophy of religion. And you've edited several books, including The Philosophy of Forgiveness, Volumes 3 and 4. So your folks reached out to me to see if I'd be willing to give a plug to this book. And... Um, I'm Jewish, my listeners know that, but I also support Christianity and Islam and all the other major religions who care about truth and care about peace and love and forgiveness and, and God. So let me just quickly read all of the people you edited for this incredible volume, and I hope you have a, a best-selling book here. First, you do an intro called Concerns About Conspiracy Theories for Christians. Magnificent. I'm just now going to read. I'm not going to say the author's names if you don't mind for time. Jesus says the truth. Is it always wrong to believe a conspiracy theory? The cost of debunking conspiracy theories. Can we trust science? Conspiracy theories and meaning in life. The Lost Christian Virtue of Reasonableness, wow. A Failure of Humble Proportions, Getting Angry, It's Much Worse Than You Think, All Christians Are Conspiracy Theorists, that'd be interesting to read, Christianity, <laughs> Conspiracy Theories, and Intellectual Character, How Shall We Then Think? 
biblical insights and conspiracy, faith, reason, and conspiracy theories, the greatest conspiracy ever, testing teachings or and torching teachers, words spoken at the proper time, following Christ into controversy, the religious rhetoric of QAnon, loving our online communities, conspiracy theories, political trust, and Christian witness, a city divided, they are coming for our children, parenting teenagers in gullible times, I'm a parent, so the, the parenting stuff, very important. Jesus was also conspired against, yet he was without sin. And then you have an appendix, careful reasoning guide. Gentlemen, I am so grateful for you doing this book. And so I'm just going to open it up and say with that, what do you hope from people reading your book? Yeah, I'll start and then Greg can add some stuff in. For us, it's something we're concerned about and we just want people, obviously it's geared towards Christians in a certain sense, like we kind of assume that a perspective. And we just want people to think about these things more carefully. Um, I, I shared recently with someone else that um, like this stuff is not just hard in church communities, but it's it's dividing families. So a friend of mine, he and his relationship with his dad, it's really strained because his dad is so into this kind of stuff. And so I, I think our hope is that it would be a resource for people who have a relationship with someone who is buying into these at some level. Yes. We're hoping that people who do buy into them um, would read it because we, we've tried to be as fair as we can um, to help our contributors do that. And so there's varying degrees of, you know, sort of how hard line and the approach is and criticizing it. Um, I mean, there have been conspiracies that happen. So we use conspiracy theory true in a truth neutral way. Um, some right. of our, and some of our contributors don't, but, but yeah, we just want it to be a resource for people that, that this is really a big issue in their lives. Well, and let me just say, if I may, um, that as a former Mooney who believed that Moon was fulfilling Jesus's failed mission, this was back in the 70s that I got caught up in that cult, um, I just think anyone listening to this or coming across your book that's sure that they are doing God's will, whether they're following a prophet, a self-proclaimed prophet or apostle, trust God, trust your intelligence, and open your mind to consider other points of view, because God may have a message for you. So forgive me for adding that in, but I really do hope that not only families of loved ones who've been caught up in these and have cut off contact with their loved ones read this book, but use it as a way of saying, can I share something with you? Could we read it together and use it as a discussion point? Because I really would like to understand you and I would really like you to understand you know, me and my point of view better. Dr. Greg, I think that's great. And I wanted to just emphasize that point that I hope that at least through some of the chapters in the book, that the virtue of open-mindedness comes out and that the virtue of, of listening to others who believe these things come out. We, we need it on both sides. And so I'm real, what got me interested in the project is friends of mine 
who believe these things. And, and I, I learned because of my love for them, I, you know, I need to listen. I need to affirm what they're doing right, what they're thinking right about these things. And then I need to probe if I'm going to take those views seriously, not just dismiss them as so many other people in the church have. We need to listen and we need to think critically about them. And if you've got a close friend, a friend or family member who believes these things, I think it's on you to love them in that way. And that's, yeah. that's challenging. I hope this serves as a helpful tool for that. Very much so. And if I may, I'll just say respectful curiosity and being open-minded and letting them know you're willing to be persuaded to change your mind and ask them if they're willing to, in a pursuit of truth, or if they believe in God, in a pursuit of truth and God's will, um, and being prepared to really do active listening where you're paraphrasing back to them what they said to make sure you got it right and inviting them to do the same thing with the points that you make. And I'll even add one more thing. I believe in a reciprocity approach. Share something with me that was particularly persuasive to you that, that, uh, that influenced you to adopt this point of view. I'd like to watch it with you or read it with you and then give me my turn to share something with you that we can then read together or watch together. And it's this kind of respectful, warm engagement. And, and I can't tell you how many people have told me they've just cut off contact with their sister, their brother, their uncle, their grandmother, their right. parents. And that's throwing them deeper in the rabbit hole. That's the opposite of what's going to actually help uh, uh, end this polarization. So, and and then I'll just add, I've 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 talked with Christian ministers who were like, I had to leave my church because it mm. got taken over by QAnon. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's and that's that gives you a. Um insight into how prominent it is. Um, I mean, there's good survey data, there's good anecdotal, you know, we, all kinds of stories like that. And so I think initially a few years ago when it, we first started hearing more about it, I just dismissed it as just kind of a whatever, th you know, just something that's on the news a lot and is no big deal. But prior to this book and then in doing the research and just reading what our contributors had to say, it just made me realize how, um, how widespread it is more than I would have had originally thought. Yeah. And I wrote a book, a political book, The Cult of Trump, and I talk about the new apostolic reformation people and the prosperity ministers. We just had a major tragedy in Kenya with over 200 dead bodies by a prophet who said, these are the end days, stop eating and, and kill your children. And they think there's uh, another 600 missing. And we, we have an estimated 650 million people worldwide involved with this form of Christianity that everything that I've studied, all the ministers and the theologians said, this is not Jesus's teachings. Like this is an invention. So I'm pitching it back to you. So what, strategy, what are some strategies for addressing conspiracy theories in the church? Uh, well, I, uh, for one, I would say, uh, as I said in, 
before, the first chapter does it well. This is Davis and Yang's chapter. Um, we need to listen, we need to praise, and we need to probe. So that's key. And uh, one of my friends once said, um, instead of entering into a conversation, trying to debate or win a debate with the person, your loved one or whoever it is, hopefully it's a friend of yours, you're not trying to win a debate here. You're trying to listen. You're trying to, he said, your goal should be to come away from the conversation, having that person think you love them more. And that's the challenge, because especially with these controversial topics, how, how many of us come away from those conversations feeling like, oh, I feel affirmed. I feel better now that I've had this conversation. No, usually not. But it's better for us if we enter into those conversations with that goal in mind. I think that sets the foundation for a good, healthy, constructive conversation. That's great. And I've been saying this for 47 years. Love is stronger than mind control. And if it's someone that you've known your whole life, you have a body of relationships to draw on. And if you have tried to persuade and called them names or whatever, apologize and ask for forgiveness. Right. Can we do a redo? Because you matter and I miss you and you're important to me. And let's agree to be in each other's lives. Right. Because all mind control cults, and I will call it a cult, like QAnon, I've evaluated as a bite model of authoritarian control cult. They'll only love you conditionally. These are air quotes. They'll only love you if you believe what they believe and are obedient to what they tell you to do. The minute you start questioning, the minute you aren't sure, they'll kick you out. And, and and call you names and tell you, you know, uh, terrible right. things, right? So mm. it's not real love. Real love right. is unconditional. It's based on beingness, not on performance. And my chapter in the book's on anger. So I'm really, this is also my research on anger and forgiveness coming in here. But what concerns me is, is the anger on both sides we see in the church. You see, I mean, you probably have the experience. You see a conspiracy theorist whether it's on January 6th or elsewhere, when they start talking about these topics, they get really agitated and angry. But in the church, we believe that it's the, the, the biggest commandment or the first commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. So anger, if, if, if anger is present and we think there is a healthy place for anger, it shouldn't interfere with those first two things, like loving your neighbor. So if, if your anger has gotten in the way of loving your friend or your family member, like you, like you said, cut off that person from conversation. Yep. It seems to me that it's, it's our responsibility to go back, ask for forgiveness, reestablish communication, and make it clear that you love that person, you, you value that relationship. And that's challenging. Yeah, that's, it's awesome. And, uh, you know, anger and fear are two powerful emotions that we know for a fact are being manipulated online and by certain media because it short circuits our critical thinking and our common sense and it 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 it, it really is a problem unless it's mediated in a reasonable way isn't that one of the the, the, the main topics, we need reason and to be reasonable in terms of what, what we believe. And um, so I, I guess I, I, I want to say 
we can each control our reactions to a certain extent if we understand how people have been indoctrinated, in my words, brainwashed, mind-controlled, hypnotized into a worldview. And again, it's love and it's truth that will set you free. Yeah, and I think this is where even though our book is, you know, has a Christian point of view within it, there's a lot there that could help anybody. If you take that approach of just, you know, what Greg was talking about, I think of in philosophy, we talk about a lot of controversial stuff, obviously, um, in the classroom and in our work with each other. And you can approach it like face-to-face where opponents trying to win. But if we could build a model where kind of building off what you guys have talked about of, you no, know, let's stand side by side as people who are trying to figure out, you know, pointing outward, trying to figure out the truth together. And that, if you're really approaching that way, that's going to undercut some of the anger. That's going to require a bit of humility before the other person. And and look, as a philosophy professor, when somebody says something that I think is irrational or unreasonable, I just want to jump and say, well, here are the five, you know, arguments against that. And there's an important place for that. But if you do that devoid of relationship or love or humility, patience, all those things, compassionate curiosity, not going to make any progress. And you're not really valuing the person. You're just trying to make yourself feel better by getting the arguments out. So, so I think it all matters, right? The arguments are clearly important because we care about truth. Right. But that relational aspect and dimension, it has to be there too. Right. So can I ask the question or a question? Do you think that Joe Biden, and you don't have to answer, but do you think that all of Hollywood and our president and all Democrats are killing babies and draining their blood of adrenochrome? Like, really? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll go on record. No, I don't believe that. Yeah. And why don't you? You're Christians, you're professors, you teach ethics. Why don't you believe that? Yeah, for me, I don't know of any like good piece of evidence that would lead me to believe that, right? But I can think of a lot of things, a lot of reasons people have to put that kind of stuff forward, right? Probably goes into some of your research, actually, on um, mind control and cults and those kind of things. There's an overlap. So so I don't believe it because I don't have any good reason to. And I actually have a lot of good reasons not to believe it. Um, And I I don't know of any publicly available, verifiable evidence for those kind of claims. And if somebody wanted to give me some, then I could, you know, engage it. But with the things I've seen, yeah, there just seem to be, they're just stories, but I don't have any reason to put any faith in those stories. So... Right. So, uh, Greg, did you want to add anything or, or no, that I... just brings to mind, uh, you know, one of the examples or cases I use in my class is the pizza gate. Uh, right. Guy, what was his name? Welch. I think his name was, he walked into the, um, pizza planet. Or yeah. Comet pizza Comet in pizza, DC right. thinking that there was in the basement, you know, Hillary Clinton's pedophile ring only there was no basement. Right. And I talk uh, with my students about this. If you have you know, if, if somebody tells you that might be the case, there might be some sort of child trafficking, what's the right response? Well, it's first to ask questions, look for evidence. It's not to go drive down to the pizza place with an AR-15 and unload it in the, in the place. That, that doesn't seem like the right response to me. So, so let's, say, let's say there was some uh, evidence somewhere that somebody produced that, here, look at this. Well, if, look into it, 
use your intellectual virtues and your critical thinking skills. You may need to call the authorities, call the police, but it seems clear to me that that's not the right response. Yeah, and if I may add, because we're now entering into a, a period of time with unprecedented AI manipulation and disinformation and deep fakes, um, look for the source of the information. Yes, right. you're absolutely right to say, where's the evidence? I'd like to evaluate it, but where's the source? And when people say, oh, a former CIA agent or you know, a former general of our, you know, a director of intelligence agency, Michael Flynn, you need to understand why he was fired. You know, what, what, what was, you know, what was the evidence behind why he was not welcome in, in uh, the government, even under the Trump administration? And you find out there's this Christian-esque right-wing group that wants violence of a war in our streets because they want to destroy democracy and impose a theocracy and undermine the founders of our constitution that said we should have a separation of church and state and powers. So ask about the source, do some digging, and and um, don't share stories, especially if you agree with them without fact-checking it, because we have what's called confirmation bias, so we'll tend to believe anything that resonates with our belief, our current beliefs, but that's an error too. Um, so look for reliable sources, trustworthy people who care about truth, and who care, and if they're religious, care about the Bible, care about Jesus's words. You know, like, you, what did he say about rich people entering the kingdom of heaven? Little different messaging than the prosperity people. You know, go ahead and put the tithing on your credit card, and you will be rewarded ten times. That's not in the New Testament. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. I think that that's reliable sources of knowledge just across life. And it's going to become already is difficult given the access to information and the things you pointed to make it even more difficult. But I would add too, what's the one, one question to ask is what's the fruit or results of these beliefs in somebody's life? You know, I think that's important. Does it look like they're flourishing and happy or are they sort of obsessive and closed off and starting to, you know, yeah, is it is it working in their lives? And oftentimes, I think you can kind of you can show that it's not. That is such a great point, and um, you will know the fr the tree by the fruit it bears. A good tree bears good fruit, and I don't know the verse, mm. but a bad yeah. tree bears bad fruit. Yes, and you know, you look at my former cult leader, and he was having sex with all of his female disciples, having children out of wedlock, but telling members that they have to be uh, married to a stranger that he assigns to them, and that they won't go to heaven unless you know they're married by him or one of his his uh, cohorts. It's like what. Right, but the fruit is really important, and 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 living your faith. So let's. This is great. 
So let's move on to, uh, if I may ask some other questions. So what intellectual and moral virtues do Christians need to cultivate? We've already touched on a few, but do you want to expound on that a little bit more? Because hmm. I think ultimately it's reaffirming the, the values of religion, of the, the real thing. Like love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Like that's the real thing. It's a love commandment, not a f fear Satan with all your heart, mind, and strength, and fear everyone right. that doesn't agree with you. It's not a fear-based teaching. Anyway, I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, guys. No, but I'll, I'll, start with, I'll start with one. Please. Uh, intellectual autonomy, and that's often used on the other side by the conspiracy theorist against somebody who doesn't buy into the particular theory that they're talking about. Uh, so for example, the mantra, think for yourself, expresses a type of intellectual autonomy. Um, but it seems like, and this is where it crosses over into a uh, you know, logical fallacy. And that is that you can think for yourself too much, it seems. And so if autonomy, thinking for yourself is a virtue, then according to Aristotle, it would be something like a golden mean somewhere in the middle. So in that case, you can think for yourself too much, but you can also think for yourself too little. So we want to be very clear that you can trust experts, um, and that's what you should do. And you can still be autonomous. It doesn't. It doesn't mean you have to like as I've heard it said to me. Oh, you just have blind faith in the government or in science. I mean, that's that, that's an, that's an extreme. That's obviously uh, what we're not endorsing here. But something more in the middle. So you mm -hmm. can trust experts after you've taken a step of autonomy to judge whether they are in fact experts. So, right. There's one. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Mike, did you want to add something? Yeah, I think one, I think two. One is intellectual courage because mm. in a lot of communities, whether it's a church or just, a, you know, a religious community or a community of people where this is prominent, it might take a lot of intellectual courage to step out. And if, if you're kind of enmeshed in these groups or in some of these theories, to actually question it, right? I mean, that could be really hard to do because you've got these other forces apart from just, you know, your reason, obviously, right. that are in play. And I think for me, you know, my chapter's on humility. And I think that's a big one because I think some people, we have too much faith, right, in our intellectual abilities, right? We think that, like, I can do a Google search and, you know, the experts are wrong. So we want to have sort of a fallible faith in the experts. But if they're true experts, uh, humility says, look, they know more. I mean, random example, like if I started to read about theoretical physics, I would really, I could do that for a year, but I wouldn't want to over, you know, turn the experts on that. Right. Like humility is just realizing we've got limits. We can't know everything. And I think religious people, especially in different faiths that value truth, think, well, if I pursue it, I'm going to get the truth. But that's just not, we're human beings, right? So accepting some of our limitations, I think is really important. And just realizing maybe a question to ask is if every time that I deny the consensus of experts, that falls in with the beliefs I already hold about politics or conspiracy or whatever area it is, that's kind of a red flag, right? Because I'm always, I'm only denying the experts when they disagree with me. Um, right. So that confirmation bias plays in there for sure. And just a, a kind of a self, and like an egotistical form of reasoning that can be dangerous. Right. And and I would just say to our listeners, 
you need to check out what is the expertise of this person? Because I've seen sociologists of religion say there's no such thing as mind control or brainwashing. It's, you know, and you can't call a group a cult. It's a new religious movement. And they know nothing about social psychology. They know nothing about hypnosis. They haven't studied radicalization and de-radicalization. So they're not experts. But the other comment, if I may, I'll just say that I learned when I was researching the book about a psychological warfare tool that was written about in the 1980s by William Lenz called Fourth Generation Warfare. And it's warfare aimed not at converting the enemy to your point of view, but to confuse them, disorient them, get them to not have faith in experts, not have faith in science, not have faith in institutions. So, because if they're uncertain, they'll be more fearful, and then they'll be more responsive to an authoritarian voice of certainty that says, trust me, I know how to fix America. Just vote me in and we'll take care of everything. And there's some comfort in, in, in that certainty and confident voice, but there's no policies, there's no substance to, to it too. So that's, that's another piece. Um, you know, to, that I'd like to add to that one. Um, and and I, uh, if I may, one more thing. Um, there are cognitive neuroscientists who wrote a book called The Knowledge Illusion. And they did studies, scientific studies, where people think they understand things, but they don't. They just believe them. And when they're asked to explain, like, how does a toilet work? Like, how does, when you pull the lever, how does it work? They haven't a clue. They just know it works. And the, their point is, is that humans have survived and, ex, and, and excelled as a species because we have one another and because we look outside of ourselves to experts to fill in the gaps when we need to have more detail Right, but that that's where, and you mentioned it, Mike, about Googling. Like people are trusting Google and they're not aware of how much misinformation, how much search engine optimization is being misused, the algorithms, by bad actors who have agendas. So there's an, we need each other to lift each, us, each other up in truth, in love, in humility and compassion. I'm sorry, I'm preaching to the choir, I know. You yeah. you edited the book, <laughs> QAnon, Chaos and the Cross, Christianity and Conspiracy Theories. So what else? So why do you think conspiracy theories are especially appealing in some Christian circles? Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, I think one of the reasons why Christians believe conspiracy theories is just this creeping distrust that, I mean, it's not just in the church, it's in society as a whole. If you've been aware of what's been going on the last few decades, you know we've, we've just had loss of faith in institutions as a, in society as a whole. But I think that's very clear in the church, and there's other reasons for that as well. But it's, it's, the, it's the distrust of institutions. Um, it's the marriage of evangelical Christianity and, you know, politics, right-wing politics. 
And that's, those are, those are two factors in play here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mike, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I think that there's a, I'm not sure exactly how to word this, but maybe a, well, it's distrust of institutions. And I think it, even though that's recent, that's, that's been going on for a while. So you can even think back to the sort of evolution, young earth creationists, those kind of debates and, and sort of, and I remember way, even back in the eighties, you know, people at that time were distrustful of, you know, secular universities or public universities that, that they're the sort of agenda to undermine the faith of Christian students or religious students that come in. And, and while, yeah, that happens to, I mean, that does happen. That's not, it's just not reality, right? I mean, I've mm. been around universities for a long time and, you know, a P, I did a PhD at a public university in philosophy and there was no sort of bias. We just all, here's what I think, here's why, and we had at it, you know? And so that was a good experience. Now, of course, some people have bad experiences. My point is there's this, we think there's like this true story below the appearances. And while in a religious faith, there's some, like, we're used to reasoning that way. Like, yes, God's not physically obvious. I don't see God, you know, walking down the street, but I believe God is active in the world. And so I think that kind of reasoning can get distorted to, well, there are these other secret forces at work that other people don't see that, that I am privy to. Um, so I think that might be part of it, too. There's sort mm -hmm. of this mirror image of religious reasoning that might happen mm -hmm. in some cases. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, something else just came into my mind as I'm really wanting to problem solve this attack on on reasonableness and on love and religion that nourishes the soul and doesn't divide people and and cause you know such fear and 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 anger um and um and that is i really want to try to do what i can to destigmatize uh the idea that if you believed in QAnon and no longer believe in it, that there's an environment that encourages you to share your journey because there are probably yeah. going to be a lot of other people in your church and in, in the world that also have been doubting, but they're scared to say anything because they don't want, I told you so. Why didn't you listen to me? Which is what my friends and family did to me when I got out of the Moonies. I told you he wasn't the Messiah, you know, and that didn't help me feel good about myself at all. I felt worse for it versus we're so glad that you realized that this was a lie and that you were following a false prophet or a false Messiah. Welcome back. Yeah. I think yeah, we as there's sort of a golden can, can rule. Contribute. Oh. Oh, sorry. No, go we ahead, can, Greg. That's fine. We can contribute through through teaching critical thinking and being Christian philosophers in the church uh, can can contribute can help the church think through these tough issues. And when I got into this topic of conspiracy theories, I thought it was going to be pretty simple. It's not. It is complicated. And just because there are some some that are true and some that are false, um, but well, I think there are conspiracies that are proven. And then there are right. conspiracy theories that are not, like chemtrails or the Flat Earth Society right. or 9-11 was an inside job, which has been debunked thoroughly, except we hear famous people, including Tucker Carlson recently, just was spouting it again, 
that you know the 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 World Trade Center towers came down because of internal uh, explosives. Nonsense. Where's the uh, evidence? And houses the faith we need to cultivate critical thinking and a healthy skepticism. And that's something that maybe we haven't done so well at for the last few decades. And we need to do that. And I think Christian philosophers are in a perfect position to contribute and help out in this way. Right. Yeah. So um, I just read a piece earlier today about how so many people are leaving uh, uh, organized religion and maybe they're going to Pentecostalism or some of these NAR groups and stuff because of the experience. They, they think, well, they're speaking in tongues. I mean, I can speak in tongues just because I help people get out of cults. And I, many decades ago, I was helping people out of the way international and they had a course teaching people how to talk in tongues. And I'm like, oh, this is a learned behavior, glossolalia, and there's no evidence at all that these are ancient tongues. In fact, you know, linguists have analyzed the the phonemes and said, nope, <laughs> nope, sorry. Well, so you know, what what saith thou? I'm gonna just keep it open. Any comments you want to make on that, or we can then move on. Well, I think when the initial question I was thinking about when somebody's coming out of this, it's just a you know, it's an application of the golden rule, right? Which, you know, different varieties and versions throughout different religions and sort of philosophies. But you think about if I was coming out of this, how would I want to be treated? And none, none, nobody wants to be told I told you so or, or mocked. Yeah, they want to be, as you said, welcomed uh, compassionately and not like ignoring what the history, but yeah, it's a, a reason to, to be glad and sort of reestablish a deeper relationship. And then, yeah, with the NAR stuff, I don't know a lot about all that. A friend of mine's actually written several books about that movement so i've learned a little bit about it um but yeah i think there are some there is some overlap with those things in terms of sort of centralized authority on a person you know that they are a literal apostle of god speaking for god and yeah again it's a different ver different kind of humility but that we need a humility well people just need humility to <laughs> to realize nobody's god um yeah, I interviewed or speaks, a former or speaks infallibly for God. Yeah, I, I interviewed a former pastor of a NAR church who went and studied the Bible, and it got him out of it. Actually, hmm. uh, he became a Bible scholar. His name is Andre Gagne, and I've done a couple of interviews hmm. with him. But very interestingly, he and a colleague, a journalist, Frederick Clarkson, uh, has been writing about the schism in the NAR movement by those. Prophets, prophets are loosely quotes, right? Apostles or prophets um, who said Trump won the 2020 election because God told them and are sticking with it. And maybe they're remembering, you know, the Torah, the Old Testament said stone a prophet to death if what they say doesn't come true. Maybe. But then there's the other side of the NAR movement that's saying, well, maybe we need to reconsider that revelation and move on. So there's a schism that's starting to happen mm -hmm. there that obviously I would love for people who know the Bible and who are true Christians, when I say true Christians, in their heart and actually know scripture uh, intelligently and academically um, and, 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 and experientially, to reach out to people who are questioning that now, you know, like, hmm, 
the Chris Krebs, who was put in place to do voting by Trump, said it was no fraud. His own attorney general said there's no fraud. There were 40 lawsuits. There was no widespread fraud. Like maybe there, there maybe Biden won the election, actually. Yeah. And I, I've heard, you know, not recently, but more, sooner after the election, people would say, well, this is the day Trump will become president. And you hear people get, you know, it's kind of like the end times. This is the day the world's going to end. And then it doesn't happen. And there's a reshuffle or a re, you know, a reset. But that just goes back to that's pretty clear publicly available evidence that if you believe in God, that God's the truth. Right. God's not going to tell somebody to say something false. So that's something that goes across, you know, whether it's cults, conspiracy theories, um, even, you know, elements of the church where leaders, individual persons get too much power. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an important sort of corrective for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what else do I want to ask you about? So um, how have Christians been affected by conspiracy theories historically? And how can we prevent this if possible? Yeah, I've thought about this a little bit. Um, there's some of this history stuff. I, I don't think conspiracy theories, well, like you can go back to or like the Salem witch trials, that kind of thing, or the Black Plague, like there are times in the past where Christians, even if it wasn't a full-on conspiracy theory, it's sort of similar sort of scapegoating and reasoning and, and like ignoring any kind of publicly available evidence. But I think like the focus in, in our book is more on the current day. Well, we saw it in the, there's a chapter in the book actually on uh, the cost of debunking conspiracy theories that talks about the satanic panic from the 60s through the yes, 90s. satanic panic. Yeah. I lived through that. Yeah. 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s even. People were doing hypnosis regression therapy and realizing their entire city was a satanic cult and everybody mm. was was killing babies. And it's like, where's the proof, please? Where's the evidence? Yeah, and I think what... like. And then then current day with QAnon and other kind of things. I think what one thing that I've more recently thought about, I don't remember writing about it in my chapter, but that concerns me is just the time and energy, both intellectual and just life that it takes away from. Right. So, you know, one thing for sure as a Christian and other religions have this too, a mark of of faith is serving others, serving the community. And so I could be doing that or, you know, spending hours researching stuff online and arguing with people about, you know, the great, oh, the storm and the great awakening of queuing on those things. So I'm concerned about that, that it, it, it becomes people, almost becomes an idol, like to use religious language. Um, I like that because it is an idol, in my opinion. And, you know, as a Jew, we're, we don't want yeah. to follow false idols, including money and putting money yeah. over you know, human life and, and ethics and values, protecting our children mm-hmm. and such. I, that, that That's really a great point. Um, so, um, Greg, did you want to add anything? Well, I'll just add that it's, it's hard because in, in religion, especially in Christianity, we have, uh, and this is chapter 10 in the book, what appears to be uh, teachings of conspiracies in the Bible, like whether it's talking about the Trinity, you know, the three mm-hmm. having a plan before mm-hmm. the creation of the world to do something, 
or that's so that would be what we would call according to that chapter a good conspiracy mm. uh, and then on the other hand you have a bad conspiracy like the devil the so the devil you've got these two forces you've got the devil doing things mm. and christians uh, historically have believed in the existence of both and so how do you unpack that how do you work that out uh, it, it appears that the devil and his minions if you believe in those things would constitute some type of evil cabal, right, and conspiracy. And so when you when you listen to QAnon and these others, they actually adopt this rhetoric. They actually adopt these terms in order to support their view about, you know, contemporary politics. That's that's dangerous. But the heart that why it's so complicated is when you're going to be a religious Christian like this, how do you where do you draw the line? Say, yes, we believe there is a devil. We got to be careful. But we don't believe in QAnon or what he's you know, saying. That's why it's complicated. I, 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 you're bringing up another fantastic point that I, I, I've been thinking about, but I'm, I can't say it, but I'm hoping the two of you might be willing to comment on it. But this, the, it's my remembrance of studying the New Testament. Um, it explicitly says that in the last days, even the elect will be deceived or there there's a, a a warning not to follow false prophets and right. it's it is evoking fear you know in the people listening to this message be careful cuz satan exists evil exists and even the 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 elect are going to be deceived like what about using that to counter or to at least provide a different perspective right. for for folks who are in this well this is matthew 7 this is to the passage you were talking about earlier it says you will know the tree by its fruit this is the question of discernment mm. so how are you going to be able to pick out who's teaching truth and who's teaching falsehood you're going to know the tree by its fruit and by fruit i my my interpretation is the fruit of the spirit mike i don't know if you have thoughts on this but you're going you're gonna to see the character, the changed character, the evidence of the spirit in that person's life. You're not going to see someone necessarily who's consumed with anger or worshiping an idol, as you said, Mike. Mike, you have other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think, you know, like love, things we've talked about, some of them already, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness, then map that on. I've lost the guy's name at the minute, but it's in the Nashville area, pastor who kind of does the conspiracy theory stuff and you know he'll 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 just be he's angry right he called call biden a demon possessed mongrel i mean using that kind of language and there's just there's no there's you can harmonize some tough talk so to speak with you know the teachings of jesus although i think we we want to do that more than we probably should because it's his tough talk was often rare and probably would be more directed at um us than the you know more to the religious hierarchy rather than the, the outcast and the marginalized. But, but I think that if somebody's acting like that, that's just, that shows you the fruit. Right. Um, and when somebody asked him for evidence, he said, well, I could show it, but I don't need to because the people that come here already believe it. I mean, those are all red flags. Right. So, so I think that's right. I think it's, it's thinking through, yeah, just the fruit. Um, and if the fruit is anger, discord, hatred, um, dehumanizing others, racist language, you know, those kind of things from a Christian perspective that doesn't line up with the, the teachings of the scriptures, the, the historical teachings of the church, you know, far from perfect, but the, there's this through line of basic human dignity, right? And 
um, in Jewish thought, Christian thought. And so if, if it's going to violate that, that's a clear um, red flag. You know, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say strike one, but it'd be strikes one, two, and three as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, Jewish scholar Hillel was asked, uh, standing on one leg, summarize the Torah. And he said, don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. The rest is, you know, is narrative or something like that, which is also yeah. back to the golden rule. <laughs> you want honesty, be honest, don't lie. And if someone's mm -hmm. a liar, how can you trust them? Yeah. Right? That's and, right. And and I, I think now back to the horrible anxiety we all were feeling when the pandemic happened and about COVID vaccines and fear about that and different ministers telling people that it's not real, it's a hoax and everything. And then they're in the ICU on their deathbed saying I was wrong before they yeah. expired. But it seems like their congregation kept believing it, even though they died. Yeah, that's the thing that's difficult to understand. I think wherever you come down on these things is when there's just clear, the way people deal with counter evidence or counter arguments, this goes kind of full circle from the start of being open-minded, courageous, and just thinking through, mm -hmm. if this was true, then this would not happen. But yeah, we see a lot of evidence to the contrary, and it's being willing to to change your mind. Look, it's hard to do. I mean, for you know, especially if it's a deeply held thing. I think of beliefs that are really core to my identity, my approach to life. That that if there was like irrefutable evidence against them, I hope that I would change my mind. But I, but being honest, I mean, like I'm not sure. I mean, it would be really difficult, and it mm -hmm. would ha only be done through community, through love, through patience um, right. with others as we interact. So, right. Great. So um, I think we've covered a lot of great, uh, important points, but I also feel like we may be missing something. What else do you want to say other than please pick up this book and, you know, learn? And there are different, you edited it. So it's many other authors with different perspectives. It's not like this is what I think alone. And and so what else do you think we want to cover? Yeah, I mean, I would say just one thing about the, the breadth of the contributors is that it, it helps people from, you know, theology, biblical studies, philosophy, communication, um, information, science. I mean, a lot of different fields come in and bring their expertise. Some of them would be more conservative th theologically, politically. Some would, so it's, there's a spectrum there. Some would be mm -hmm. in the middle. Some would be more 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 um, progressive to so we wanted to we wanted to have a broad representation right not just people that came from one perspective um in terms of politics and theology and so i think that's good and i i guess the thing that makes i guess i just want to say what can we our hope is that this would actually help people then do something you know one one hit on ac academic writing and this is geared for a non-academic audience i guess mm -hmm. to make that clear right but academics tend to be isolated and um, not really, it, right? It's just not practical. Like as we worked on our Ivory stuff, Tower, and other people, comes to mind. That's right, Mike. Yeah, now, as an academic, we, <laughs> a little bit. Sorry. Yeah, go on. No, that's for sure. And and I believe in the 
the heart, the scholarly academic work that, you know, like we talked about the start, working with Oxford University Press. I thought I was doing a second dissertation. I thought, why am I doing this? Because, you know, just a few, maybe 30 people will read it and 25 so they can write something against it. But it, for me, it was the pursuit of truth and wisdom, you know, yes. and for me and anybody that came across it. For this book, it's the same thing. It's like, what are some, we want to give people tools in their own lives and their churches and their communities. And so I think the book was, it's meant to be practical in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. Some chapters are a little tougher sledding than others, but, but they, they all, I mean, we're happy with how it came out. So I, maybe we should talk about the, the family thing and with kids, because I think that's something that, Great. The, you know, you wouldn't have to be right. Even though with that person comes from a Christian point of view, we all care about, you know, that's a human thing, caring about kids and, and how do we help them navigate our culture? Mm -hmm. Um, Please, what do yeah. we do to help our children? We know that modeling is the most powerful way to influence our kids. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the first thing that came to mind is if we want to model some of these intellectual and moral virtues, and then you know talk our kids through them, engage them, maybe asking them questions. Have you you know pick out some of the beliefs that that are in the book or that are prominent in your community? that conspiracy conspiracists often propagate ask them if you know if some of their friends are talking about them but you know just starting the conversation is first because i mean all of my children now are out of they're out of the house out you know they're adults in the world so it's a little bit different but but i remember how sometimes it's hard to get a middle schooler or a high school student sometimes to talk so mm. you know kind of asking those questions digging a little bit seeing what's going on and i would guess that yeah, of course, in our day and age, they're familiar with at least some of this stuff and, and see what it's like in their lives. Do they have friends that are buying in? Are they buying into some of them? Mm -hmm. um, so the first start, like you said, modeling and then just engaging in conversation. Those would be the first couple of steps. I don't think that teaching your kids is anything different. Teaching them about conspiracy theories is anything different than teaching them about any different perspective than what you hold in your household. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... It's just you're modeling how to take a different perspective and respect other people, right? You're saying, look, these people believe this. What do you think? And, and, this, and we have the great opportunity to model critical thinking for them as they're growing older. Obviously, when they're really young, you might not be able to, to do that very well. Um, but as they get older, you say, look, this is what this group of people believe, whether it's the other political camp or whether it's another religion. Let's talk about it. Let's. You, you don't have to shelter them, especially as they're getting older. You you start to help them see how other people see the world, and then you work with them through it. I don't see how talking about conspiracy theories would be any different. And I didn't write that chapter, but great chapter, by the way. I, don't, I just don't see how it'd be any different than teaching them about anything else. Right. I I I would love to just add that I this is podcast is called the influence continuum because I have a graphic visualization of ethical influence versus unethical undue influence and for me ethical parenting recognizes the parents should be authoritative that their goal is to steward their children to grow up to think to individuate uh, to be their full self. But the unethical side is about cloning, wanting obedience, you know, corporal punishment, fear, doctrine, you know, do it because I say so, not because I'm, I'm behaving the opposite. And so there's a way of, of thinking about healthy parenting 
that's developmentally appropriate that is giving guidance, but the goal is that you raise adults who are able to function on their own versus be you know, versions of yourself that they, mm-hmm. maybe then they get angry and rebel and cut off from, from parents or leave their parents' churches because it's too oppressive or something like that. Yeah, I think the stewardship idea is key. That's actually something I've developed and argued for just in a, as a general approach to parenthood. And, you you know, as a, that means my discussion with my 10-year-old is going to be different than with my 17-year-old about these kind of issues or any. But, but again, right. as Greg said, that's just any issue, right? We believe that, you know, like I believe this, you know, and my kids don't have the exact same beliefs as I do. And some, in some cases, it's no big deal to me. In other cases, it's kind of difficult. But then you realize, well, they're adults and they've got to make their way. And, you know, parenting adult children is different than three-year-olds. But, but one picture that helped me the most when I was thinking through this is I'm a, I'm a steward in many ways of our children, right, for society. But also right. I'm a steward of the life that they kind of fully get delivered to them when they are adults you know i mean they're i'm a steward of what where they're at you know and of course i can't control it and i wouldn't want to because you know i'm human but i think that comes into play here it's like our kids are these things aren't going anywhere right i mean maybe QAnon is but this kind of issue in society conspiracy theories and um, cultish beliefs and other kind of things in this sort of broad category we want to equip our kids to to engage them honestly, openly, um, in an intellectually and morally sound manner. And so I think, so I really think as a parent, you know, my kids can tell you how successful I was or not, but we really focused on just trying to develop them, um, their character and virtue and, you know, making that a part of our everyday language when they would go through difficult things and not as a, you need to be patient, but as, you know, you know, it's hard, right? What makes it difficult to be patient with this person or, just working through it. And yeah, I think that that can be helpful because we can't control for ourselves or our kids, the world, but we can kind of help equip ourselves and our kids to be ready to face the world from a a virtuous position. That's the best I think we can do. Yeah. And I, I, I need to just add in, in this digital world with social media, and we know that it's causing great anxiety, depression, and other mental illness features like you know losing concentration and kids are on for 10 hours to 14 hours a day i highly recommend watching the documentary uh the social dilemma by the Mm -hmm. center for humane technology with your kids and talking about how these platforms they're deliberately orchestrated to attack your attention and hold it and and it's not about you. It's about improving uh, advertising revenue by having you on the platforms and collecting your data of of what you like and what you don't like. This is a big challenge for parents now. Is is this um, this new technology that doesn't have guardrails yet, and we need guardrails. You know? Yeah, for sure. So, Greg, did you want to weigh in as we are looking at wrapping up in the next few moments, uh, your wonderful book that you've edited? We just hope that this book is a helpful toolkit for loving your neighbor better, Mm. hopefully providing a little clarity on a very tough issue. Mm -hmm. And Mike, 
Any any last words? I'm going to hold up the book. We're going to have a video of this as well as a podcast. And it's, again, QAnon, Chaos, and the Cross, Christianity, and Conspiracy Theories. Uh, and we have uh, on the Influence Continuum the two co-editors of this really important volume that we hope is a bestseller. And we hope, you know, every church, you know, asks its its leadership to read it and to maybe organize book study uh, clubs and um, really use it as an opportunity to learn and grow and grow closer and lift each other up. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, I just echo what Greg said. And I think that's what you both said is a good way to, to sum up what our hopes for it is. Great. Are. So thank you very much, and and please stay in touch and continued success. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Appreciate the discussion. Great. Thanks. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books. Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new 9-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.